Acts chapter 7 ended with a downer. Stephen, this man very much like you and I, who we've been looking at in some great detail over the last month or so, has met his end. I say his end. He met his beginning. Though he was stoned to death, Stephen, before breathing his last, looked to heaven. And what did he see? He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Indeed, the author of his faith proved able to also be the finisher. Stephen ended well. But with the death of Stephen comes two dramatic shifts in our study, not just of the book of Acts, but our study of Scripture in general. First, we see in the death of Stephen, the close of Acts 7, a general shift in God's plan for the ages. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, and you continue all the way through Acts chapter 7, it is clear that God's work in the world centered was positioned almost exclusively on the Hebrew people. By design, following Noah's flood in the Tower of Babel, God called and separated out a man of faith, a man named Abraham. And God gave Abraham all kinds of promises of which that his descendants would be called out of the world so that they might be a light of revelation into the world. And yet, not only had the Hebrew people failed to fulfill their calling, the calling by which they were called for, but as we discussed last Sunday, with the rejection of the Holy Spirit's revelation through the ministry of Stephen, we find a transition occurring in the nation itself. In the Old Testament, God sent prophets. God the Father revealed himself in miraculous ways, supernatural ways. The glory of the Father came and filled the tabernacle and later the temple. But did the Jews respond to the presence of the Father, the revelation of the Father? No, they proved to be resistant, to be stubborn. And so after years of the Father's revelation being rejected, the Father's love being rejected, the Father decides to send his only begotten Son, thinking that it'll be the Son, the revelation of the Son, that these people will finally rally around. But do they? No. Just as they rejected the Father, they rejected the Son, and they killed him. And then when we get into the book of Acts, we see a transition. We have the Father, we have the Son, both being rejected. Now we have the Holy Spirit filling believers, being sent specifically where? To Jerusalem. And Peter and John come before the religious leaders. They're a witness to the, the revelation of Jesus, the resurrection of the Christ. They're resisted. But they're dealt with passively. And then what happens? They're sent again, Peter and John again. This time they're dealt with a bit passively, but a bit more aggressively. They're beaten and then cast out. But with Stephen, Stephen comes, in my estimation, as the final prophet sent to Israel. And what takes place? They stone him. You see, beginning with Acts chapter 8, the entire narrative of the Bible, <laughs> this very story that begins in Genesis 12, now to Acts chapter 8, what we see here is that things are dramatically like that, on a dime, shifting away from any further dealings with the Hebrew people 
and instead will focus solely on God's dealings now with the rest of the unbelieving world. Scripturally speaking, it will not be until the 144,000 Jews appear in Revelation chapter 7 that we see any further revelation extended to the nation of Israel. Well, you might say, what about Paul at the end of Acts? Well, if you recall both Paul's sermon to the people and then later his appearance before the Sanhedrin, and neither instance, if you go and look, will you see Paul given an opportunity to ever get to the gospel message. It seems as though when they stoned Stephen, they rejected the Holy Spirit, in some ways committing the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Nothing comes after the Spirit. And God places his dealings with them on hold. You see, in a sense, Stephen's death triggered, from my position, a prophetic pause in God's plan for Israel. You can read more about this in Daniel chapter 9. And his death initiated what we would refer to now as the times of the Gentiles, a phrase coined by Jesus in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, or what we might also refer to as the church age. Please realize, when the Hebrew people failed to be God's instrument of revelation into the world, when they failed to fulfill his calling, Jesus would fulfill this calling. Through his church, by the power of the Holy Spirit, unto where? The entire world. Acts. Acts documents, in a very literal sense, the fulfillment of God's plan all along. You know, it's interesting, after the flood, the only survivors were Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives. Noah and his wife weren't gonna be reproducing anytime soon, so all of humanity descends from Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The entire world, all ethnicities, all people groups, everyone comes from these three sons. And what's fascinating, is if the gospel now, because the Hebrew people failed to be a light of revelation in the world, God fills the church with his spirit, Jesus uses them, sends them into the world, that we find here in the first several chapters, the appearance of what? Of the revelation of God being extended to all three people groups. You see, at this point in our travels through Acts, the gospel has already reached the descendants of Shem, the Semitic people. These were the Hebrews, by the end of Acts 8, the gospel will have been extended to the descendants of Ham, the Hamaic people, which we'll find at the end of Acts 8 being represented in the Ethiopian eunuch. Then in Acts 10, the gospel will finally be extended to the descendants of Japheth, Cornelius, the Europeans, the Romans. It's fascinating. Acts 8 marks a transition. God says to the Hebrew people, because of your resistance... I'm going to set you aside. You've been stubborn. I'm going to set you aside. You fail to listen to me. I'm going to set you aside. I'm not done with you. There will come a day that God will finish his dealings with the Hebrews. But now God sets them aside and Acts 8 totally turns to the rest of the Gentile world. And so we see a general shift here with the death of Stephen and God's plan for the ages. But we also see a specific shift and the way the Jewish leaders would handle Christians. If you recall in Acts chapter 5, following Peter and John's second appearance before the Sanhedrin, this ruling body, we're told that the council, that some in the council, plotted to kill them. 
Like this idea of wanting to kill the Christians wasn't new. It doesn't arise in Acts 7. In Acts 5, some in the council wanted to kill Peter and John, but we're told that a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was held in all respect by the people, he said to them, keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing, but it is of God. You cannot overthrow it, lest you be found to be fighting against God. Now, Gamaliel's reasoning in dealing with this new movement, this new thing that was happening there in Jerusalem, was that if it was a work of men, they shouldn't bother with it. It would die a natural death. He even, in his argument, presents two examples where this was the case. However, Gamaliel cautions against taking an aggressive action against the Christians for if what was taking place was a work of God, A, there was nothing you could do to stop it, and B, you would be found resisting God, which Gamaliel at least has enough spiritual intuition to say is not a good thing. So he's saying, we need to just take a passive approach. What will be will be. If it's of man, it will die. If it's of God, there's nothing we can do anyway. So why pit ourselves against maybe something that's new? And while this would seem to be the policy of the religious leaders, for approximately three years, the first three years of the church's existence, Acts 7 and the death of Stephen marks a dramatic shift away from this particular policy. You see, no longer would a passive approach be taken towards the followers of Jesus. Instead, an active, a violent campaign to suppress this new movement would ensue. Ironically, this campaign, this violent campaign, would be led by one of Gamaliel's most promising students, a man named Saul. Now, though we'll spend more time when we get to Acts chapter 9 developing a profile of Saul, who, spoiler alert, becomes the Apostle Paul, at this juncture, it's important for us to just mention a couple things that we know to set the stage. The first thing, it seems Scripture indicates, is that Saul... He was a member of this synagogue of the freemen, this group that Stephen was having debates with. We know that because of the locations provided of who these synagogue of the freemen uh, guys were, that Tarsus was probably a home of one of these branches, Saul being from Tarsus, being a choice student of Gamaliel. It seems likely that Saul was arguing the counterpoint against Stephen, that they were kind of going toe-to-toe, had a lot of interactions with one another, meaning Saul had direct responsibility for the plight of Stephen. Luke points out that since Saul held the coats of those who stoned Stephen, Acts 7 verse 58, it is likely, you can't say with 100% certainty, but just likely, that Saul, Saul actively recruited the false witnesses, that it was Saul who set up the kangaroo court, that it was Saul who instigated Stephen's illegal execution. He held the coats of the men who stoned Stephen. Secondly, because of Saul's obvious involvement, Stephen's accusation, it's interesting in regards to Saul. You see, Stephen told the verdict came down from God, that these men were what? Stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears. They were always resisting the Holy Spirit. And if it applied to the body at large, it applied who to whom specifically? This man saw, which indicates if we go with the context of what Luke is saying. And how do we get this story, by the way? The, the whole account? Later on, a choice 
traveling companion, personal physician of the Apostle Paul, Saul, would be Luke, our author. So all the language being used here, all of the details being provided, more than likely, while corroborated by other witnesses, because that was Luke's model, and began from Saul's personal account. So he's like, listen, I didn't throw the stones, but I held the coats. And Stephen said, I can hear it ringing in my brain that you're stiff-necked, you're uncircumcised in heart of ears, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. And Saul would say concerning himself, for us to know that he had been what? Cut to the heart by Stephen's message. You see, Saul knew that what Stephen said was true and his conscience bore witness to this reality. And yet, instead of repenting, Saul was instead filled with indignation, hatred, that it was Saul who gnashed at Stephen with his teeth. And according to Acts chapter 8, verse 1, was also consenting to his death. For the student of Scripture, uh, you might want to, to jot down that this actual, this phrase, this, the first part of Acts 8, that Saul was consenting to his death, was actually included in the Latin Vulgate in the previous chapter. And thus, verse 1 began with, at this time, a great persecution arose. Now, either way, in the Greek, this word consenting, it's interesting, literally means to be pleased with or to actively support, to applaud. Not only did Saul approve of the stoning of Stephen, but in a very weird, twisted, maybe even sadistic way, he took pleasure in this innocent man's death. He was consenting. He wasn't just agreeing with it. He took pleasure in it. It would now seem that while initially an instigator, Saul had quickly become an active participator. The Scottish preacher Will Arnett said concerning Saul, the tiger had tasted blood, and now the creature thirsts more fiercely for another victim. And so at this time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial, made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Now, Luke tells us that following the death of Stephen and this shift in policy towards Christians, that a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And please note, this is the first time any of these believers had ever experienced such hostility and persecution. Now, being members of, of Judaism, the Jewish culture, they, they, knew, they knew opposition in the sense that they were a people in subjugation. They had to surrender to the Roman Empire at large. But religiously, they enjoyed great freedom. If you study the, the emperors of Rome, you will find a weird fascination with Judaism, the God of Israel. And so, though they knew what it was like to be under an empire, they didn't know what it was like to face religious persecution. This was the first time. And the language indicates 
that this persecution, while we are focusing specifically on Saul's involvement, was much more systematic than could have been spearheaded by just one man. We will focus on Saul because that's our character of interest, but please understand what's happening here is widespread. It's a shift in policy. Saul spearheads things, but at the same time, there are many other wreaking havoc within the church as well. This phrase, that Saul made havoc of the church is an interesting one. The Greek word havoc, it can refer to one of two things. On one aspect, it can refer to a wild animal that's tearing into its prey. Pleasant scene. Or an attacking army that's devastating the enemy. This, this word is loaded. It's full of violence, of hatred, of some nasty things. And the, the verb tense means that it was ongoing as a maddened animal, as, as an, a, a general not taking prisoners. Saul kept on making havoc of the church. And how did he do this? by forcibly entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. These are our brothers and sisters that we're reading about. Stephen executed, but this, this persecution working itself through the city, the phraseology signifies that Saul was dragging them before magistrates, dragging them to justice, in recounting this period of his life, the Apostle Paul tells us in Acts 22 and verse 26, I'll read it for you, that he was zealous towards God. That he thought he must do things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which he provides as the explanation for why he persecuted this way, binding, delivering into prison both men and women. And when they were put to death, Paul says that he cast his vote against them. He says that he punished Christians often in every synagogue, and he compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, he says that he persecuted them even to foreign cities. You know, decades later, decades later, Paul will deeply regret what he did here. This season of his life, as you can imagine, haunted him. In, second, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 through 10, Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles. He says, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle. And he says, Because I persecuted the church of God. Understand, Paul would find that it was by the grace of God he was who he was, but he regretted this period. Now, on the surface, it would be easy to explain Saul's persecution of Christians as simply being another example of the unintended consequences of religious zealotry. I mean, as, as we even read, Saul claimed his actions were spawned by a zealousness towards God and a deep conviction that he had to do things contrary to the name of Jesus. And let's be honest. Saul would not be the first person, nor would he be the last, to use God to justify thuggish behavior. I don't know if you've watched the news. There's a lot of thuggish behavior right now taking place in the name of what? Religion and God. 
So much violence stems from our religious worldview, sincere belief. And yet, this is what makes our story a bit more complicated. Like on one aspect, you could say, well, it's just religious zealotry. However, and guys, I'm going to ask, can someone, can someone help me out here? Larry? You, if you could sit in the back, that would be great. So on the surface, it would be easy to say, well, he's just a religious zealot, sincerely doing what he thought God had told him to do, right? But with Paul, I don't think you can say that. I think it's a little more complicated. Like, can you really say Saul was a sincere religious fanatic, convinced he was doing God's bidding, when in the lead up to this story, we've already been told that Saul had what? Been cut to the heart? That Saul, by his own words, his own admission, was resisting the Holy Spirit ever before he engaged in such behavior? I mean, while Saul might have acted in the name of religion, he presents a much more dangerous form of fanaticism. Saul was actively in opposition to his conscience, as opposed to one that was simply seeking to defend his convictions. Saul knew that this is not what God wanted him to do, but he masked it. He knew the truth. Please understand, we're told in scripture that the, the word of God never returns void, that the truth of God never returns void, that in some people, and a lot of people, it's supposed to produce a repentance. But on the flip side to it, it won't return void. It will always yield some reaction. You see, rejecting truth, things you know to be true, it will drive a man mad. Once again, William Arnett, he makes an interesting observation. He says, conviction goes before conversion, but conversion does not always follow conviction. With such a home thrust takes effect, takes effect on the conscience, a great anger is generated. That anger burns like fire, and it must have some object to consume. It will either burn inward, inward to consume your sins or outward to persecute the preacher who exposes them. You see, if Saul was acting against what he knew to be true, why then does he still claim he was acting in a perceived zealousness towards God? This is kind of the interesting thing. I don't think you can say that he was acting in a sincere religious belief. He was resisting what he knew to be true, which makes him way more dangerous. But then why justify it in your own mind and verbally that this was zealousness towards God, that he thought he should do this? Let me ask, what do you do, fellas, when you know that you've lost an argument with your wife. I mean, if you're like me, you humble yourself and concede defeat. No, no, absolutely not. No, not at all. Now, you see what ends up happening with men, sadly, is that instead of, instead of humbling yourself and conceding defeat, what do we do? We will double down, defend our failed position, 
with an even more zealous fervor, knowing we're wrong. Because we're stubborn. Because it's inappropriate. Now, ladies, you do the same. It's just not men. You see, isn't it true that when pride, you know, my inability to admit that I'm wrong causes me to double down instead of giving up, I end up not only resisting what I know is true, but I end up becoming a condescending, belligerent jerk in the process. Some of you ladies are like, amen. Not only do we resist what we're true, but we try to make our argument even more zealously and fervently, all the while knowing we're an idiot. One Bible commentator on this passage, he says that the reaction of Saul was not in line with what was happening in his heart. Well, I would respectfully disagree. Because Saul had been hit, he had been wounded, he had been cut deep with a reality that he resisted, that he refused to accept. This visceral reaction, this violence that comes from him is completely consistent. In the spiritual realm, God's word never returns void. It will either flow into our hearts, produce godly repentance, change, grace, mercy, or will we resist it? And at which point we can even become violent. You know, there's an old proverb that rings true to what's happening in the heart of Saul. If you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one who got hit screams the loudest. Here we find a pack of dogs that Stephen stood in front of, and he levied a verdict, a word from God. And while it might have hit most of them, the person who was screaming the loudest was the one hit the hardest. That was our man Saul. Now, before we move on, there are two important lessons that we should consider. First, practically, personally, when God cuts you to the heart, how do you respond? Do you humble yourself, repent, or instead do you bristle up, lash out? You know, I have found that it's simply a reality that a person's reaction to rebuke or personal correction or even the general proclamation of the truth of God's word, how a person responds to these things are important indicators as to what's really happening deep within the soul of a person. <laughs> I'll be honest about myself. Over the years, I have learned that the times I am most defensive, the times that I become the most abrasive or most combative are often the very times that I am being most resistant to a work God's trying to do in my life. That I know what's being said is true. I just, I just don't want to submit to it. I really hope my parents weren't paying attention or watching that online. That's my apology for like my entire childhood. The second thing that we should carry forward with this concept is that a surface evaluation doesn't always reveal the deeper workings. 
I mean, once again, in the moment, it would have been very difficult to have seen any redeeming value in the sacrifice of Stephen. I mean, not only had Stephen, a man of so much promise and potential, died, but he died giving a sermon that no one converted to, at least initially. And not only that, but he preached a sermon that there was no immediate result, and the results that were immediate were that Saul was now making havoc of the church. Talk about like a, a strategy backfiring, blowing up in your face. And yet, things were not as they seem, were they? You, you could have said, Steve, that was a disaster. It would have been better if Stephen had not even gone debating these members of this synagogue. Right now, though Saul is doing everything in his power to resist, we know that God was working way below the surface. And while it would only be about a year later that Saul would have a destiny-altering appointment with Jesus, the narrative of Acts is clear that when did God's work in Saul's life, when did it begin? When was it initiated? Well, it was initiated with this sermon of Stephen. We know that because of Saul's own words. You see, the things that Stephen said, the way that Stephen lived, the way in which he died, it was something that Saul would never be able to escape. You know, it shouldn't be a surprise that every sermon of the Apostle Paul recorded in Acts plagiarizes Stephen. We'll point that out when we get there. And virtually every doctrinal concept that Paul develops in his epistles finds its origin in this one sermon taught by Stephen. You think Stephen's words and his life and his death, think it impacted Saul? Oh, it did. It would be the motivator for him to be the apostle to the Gentiles, but it was also the motivator for why he violently reacted the way that he did. And you know, if Stephen laid down his life for the sole purpose of seeing Saul come to a saving faith, us with the benefits of hindsight, wouldn't we say it would all be worth it? Like if God had come to Stephen and said, listen, you're gonna go into this situation, you're gonna die, you're gonna get stoned to death, it's gonna be brutal, it's gonna stink, I'll reveal myself, I'll help you through it, it'll be okay. And only one person is gonna get saved. Now, most of us would be like, that's a bad proposition. But if on the flip side to it, God was like, but that one guy that's gonna get saved from this, the one guy that you're gonna make an impact, the one guy I'm really sending you for, not only will he convert, but he will do more to further the gospel into the world than any other person ever born. <laughs> You'd be like, okay, wait a second. Like, you know, Jesus, in Mark 1, verse 17, he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Stephen might have only caught one fish, but that fish was a doozy. I mean, I mean, for you, if it's like, you're gonna, one person, you're gonna impact one, but that one person, thousands and thousands and thousands of churches and people's lives will come from that. I hope you understand that you should never underestimate 
the potential impact the life you're seeking to impact might make for the kingdom of God. I think one of the great ministries of our church is what happens with our babies and our toddlers and our preschool and our kids and our youth. For here's the reason, their lives are all potential. And our Sunday school teachers, the people that are taking time to invest into your kids, they're doing so with a heavenly vision thinking that it might be your daughter or your son that God raises up and through that person initiates a great revival or just maybe a family. Never underestimate the impact the people you're seeking to impact might make for the kingdom of God. And if you're currently witnessing to a person things aren't going well, you're getting a lot of kickback, a lot of accusations hurled your direction, you're proclaiming truth and only what you're getting is insult, take heart. Because here's the deal, here's the reality. You have no idea what God might be doing below the surface. Now, before we get back to our text, we should remember that our author, Luke, he is writing the book of Acts as a historical defense brief in order to explain to Theophilus, who is the Roman official overseeing Paul's trial, how the Christian faith, which began in Jerusalem, had spread so quickly throughout the Roman Empire. That's one of the purposes of the book of Acts, to explain how something that started in Jerusalem spread so fast, and then also to explain Paul's role in the process. And from a strategic legal perspective, the first four verses of this chapter document a less than stellar period of Paul's life are included, no doubt, by Paul and Luke, so that first there could be an emphasis as to the incredible transformation that followed conversion. I mean, imagine if you're reading this for the first time and you're reading about Saul here and you've got Paul in chains, right? And you're like, well, wait a second. I know you changed your name. Is this you? Like, say what? This is you and, ha- and now I'm looking at you now and it's, you're not that same person. I wonder what happened. You read a couple chapters later and you find out, oh, you encountered Jesus and it changed you forever. It's a witness, it's a testimony. You have to kind of set up Saul's life to understand his conversion and then the impact that it made. It explains why Paul was so committed to the cause of Christ. And yet these verses also are designed to explain how the Christian faith made its initial migration out of Jerusalem. Luke is clear that because of religious persecution, They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And once again, the subtlety of this point was to substantiate the larger reality that Christianity, it wasn't marching on its own throughout the empire, that it was responding to a persecution, that it wasn't a threat. In Acts 1, Jesus had prophesied that his followers would be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I like what one old scholar says. He says, although their steps were directed by events outside of their their control, they were exactly fulfilling the master's commission. You know, sometimes things happen in life that we can't control, that we don't see anything potentially good about it. But if God works all things for the good, we know that his hands are behind them. You know, if you were to divide what we would consider Israel proper into sections in the first century, you would have three regions. These three regions would be all wedged east 
of the Mediterranean Sea, or excuse me, west of the Mediterranean Sea, but east of the Jordan River Valley, which would then extend south from the Sea of Galilee, which was in the north, to the Dead Sea in the south. Judea was the southernmost region. It contained Jerusalem. Samaria was the middle region. It was the home of the Samaritans. Today, it's the West Bank. Galilee was the northernmost region, which obviously centered around the Sea of Galilee. And beyond believers going to Judea and Samaria, in Acts 11, verse 19, Luke tells us, now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose from Stephen traveled as far north as Phoenicia, which was north of Galilee, Cyprus, which was an island west of Phoenicia, and Antioch, which was now north uh, of Phoenicia itself. So Christians are spreading all over the place. This detail, except the apostles. It's interesting. And there's two ways of looking at it. Some people say, well, this persecution happened and people were running for their lives, but it was the apostles that were standing strong in the middle of Jerusalem, like, thou shalt not pass. That it was their bravery by which they stayed in Jerusalem. Eusebius, an early writer, says that like Jesus had had a deal that they couldn't leave for 12 years, which there's no foundation for that whatsoever. The more likely explanation, as opposed to the fact that the apostles were just that brave, you know, the same group that when they arrested Jesus ran like little girls, like same group of people. But the more likely explanation for why the apostles stay behind and why that's important is that Luke is telling us something interesting is happening, that the persecution, that the scattering probably targeted not all Christians, but the Hellenistic Jews. Stephen was Hellenistic. And the one example of a scattered believer that we have later in the chapter is Philip. And thus the apostles, because they're Hebrew Hebrews, not Hellenistic Hebrews, that they're not facing the same level of persecution, at least in the initial wave, as the Hellenistic Jews were. This phrase, to scatter, it's worthy of our consideration. And in the Greek, there are two words that we find translated into English as scattered. One describes a scattering for dissipation or accidental loss. It was scattered from the wind. While the other means to be scattered for distribution. It's an intentional purpose. What do you think is happening here? That it's an accidental scattering or that it's intentional? You see, there's no doubt that Saul's intention was to disrupt and slow the spread of Christianity. But this word scattered, it means that what was happening wasn't an accident but that God was directly using this great persecution to intentionally distribute his people into new territories. It's literally the word that you would use to describe the scattering of seed. And the result, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. In Acts 2, a fire was ignited and the lives of those who were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit And over the course of the next three years, this flame, it nearly engulfed Jerusalem. Paul saw, he recognized the threat, what this threat was to Judaism. But his approach and how to curtail it, it couldn't have been worse. You see, in his attempt to beat out the fire, all Saul did was to succeed at introducing more fuel to the flames. When I was a kid, a middle schooler, we were out building a fort 
one afternoon, me and a couple of the neighborhood kids, and one of my buddy's older, older brothers was out deep into the woods. It was fall, so it was cool. And we were working on the fort or whatever, and, and, and then from the distance, we heard a voice crying out, a voice crying out in the wilderness. Now, Stephen comes running over, and behind him, it's like the whole woods were engulfed in flames. He had decided to start a little campfire, and it had quickly gotten out of control. So he comes running over to call the fire department. Someone call the fire department. So I decided this was my chance to take action. Turned to Chris, my friend. Turned to my younger brother, Nick. I was like, Nick, go call the fire department. Chris, it's time for us to take action. So we grab our shovels and we start running into the woods. Steven's running this way. The 14-year-old. A couple 11-year-olds running the other way. We got this. I learned something about a forest fire. I learned that the worst thing you can do is to try to beat out a flame. Because <laughs> we got our, our, our shovels and so there's a fire here and you're trying to beat it out. And all you're doing is spreading the debris everywhere else. So you're like, I got that fire out. And you look around and you're surrounded by fire that you just created. We were very poor firefighters. The woods burnt down. We felt heroic. But what happened in this situation, it's very similar. Saul, he sees this fire blazing in Jerusalem. I mean, it's engulfed the city. It's a threat. But what does Saul try to do? Instead of just maybe allowing it to continue to burn there, to simmer, it would eventually burn out. Maybe. But Saul did the worst thing you could do. Took a big hammer, a shovel. He tried to beat out the flames, thus spreading these little embers all over Judea, all over Samaria. And what was just in Jerusalem very quickly now took over a region. It's clear from our text that God used this persecution to move these believers out of Jerusalem and into the rest of the world with the good news of the gospel. Albert Barnes, he says, good thus came out of evil. And the first persecution resulted, as all others have done, in advancing the cause for which it was intended to destroy. Adam Clark said, thus the very means devised by Satan to destroy the church became the very instruments of its diffusion and establishment. Every pastor I listen to on this passage speculates that the reason that God persecuted the church, allowed the persecution to happen, was that he was directly trying to spur these believers in Jerusalem out of their comfort. Literally, every pastor I listen to brings this up, that the reason we see this great persecution taking place is because Jesus initially had said, You'll be filled with the Holy Spirit. You'll be witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That the, the idea is that Jesus told them to get moving. Ironically, Jesus also told them to go to Jerusalem to stay there. That Jesus would be the one calling the shots. Like to me, I have a hard time with, with the idea that what's taking place here is that these believers, this church is apathetic. That Jesus had given them this great commission the Holy Spirit was poured out. They took over, and that they were somehow resistant or hesitant 
to taking the gospel. They had been lulled into comfort. Now, it's true that God can use persecution to stir up the pot, especially when we're in comfort, to stir us onto new faith, to new adventure, to get us to move. We are creatures of habit. So it is true that in some regards, God can use a tough situation to cause us to rely on him all the more. A tough set of circumstances to get us on our knees in prayer. That God can use persecution in this way. Once again, every time it happens, the church doesn't go away. The church grows, becomes more powerful. It's an incredible thing. But in this regards, I disagree. Like, is there anything in our travels through the book of Acts to tell us in the first seven chapters that this church was apathetic? Is there anything in the text to say that they had just become comfortable, that they weren't interested in fulfilling the calling of God, the commission of Jesus? No, I think in some regards, this is giving this church a bad rap. So why the persecution? I think the persecution was evil. It was meant by Saul for destruction. But God used it for a different reason. Not in the sense that they were apathetic or comfortable and now needed to move, but instead that God, that, that they were waiting for God to tell them when it was time to move. Let, let me explain by reading an observation that Adam Clark made, makes about the passage. Jesus commanded them. When they were in one city and persecuted, to then flee to another. His estimation is that they're just taking Jesus' words literally. That this they did, but wherever they went, they proclaimed the same doctrines. Though at risk and, and, and hazards of their own lives. It's evident, therefore, that they did not flee from persecution or the death it threatened, but merely in obedience to their Lord's commands. You see, I, I kind of like this shift of thinking. Like, were they fleeing Jerusalem because they were scared of dying? Do you think Stephen was scared of dying? Not in the moment. Or you don't say the kind of things that he was saying. He was bold. He was filled with the Spirit. His life was not his own. Were they afraid to die? If they were afraid to die, and so this persecution ensues in Jerusalem and they leave, if they were afraid to die, then they wouldn't do the same thing in these other cities that they were doing in Jerusalem to initiate the persecution. That's Adam Clark's point. Saying if they were running out of fear of death or out of fear, then when they get to Judeans, they wouldn't have been preaching the gospel, but they do. It's as though Jesus said, go to Jerusalem, wait, the power of the Holy Spirit. And they're waiting around, not out of comfort or apathy, three years. They're just developing what it is the church is. They're waiting because Jesus had told them when persecution arises in one city, now move to another. Jesus had told them early on that when you see persecution, that's my way of telling you it's time to get moving. You see, I'm of the opinion that it would seem that this persecution wasn't a motivation to move out of complacency, though it can, and into a restored obedience, though it will, but was instead an indicator that the time to act was now. That the time for action was at hand. 